Hey, it's Craig. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. It's Thursday, July 21st. Great to have you in, and thank you for finding us. We dodged a bullet with our Wednesday storm. Why that was uh, indeed the case, we'll get to some of those reasons as well. And lots on the show today about the idea of more powers for the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa. Municipal election coming up. That may factor in even to how we vote. We'll talk a little bit more about the follow-up for this story and why the Premier of the province may indeed want this to be the case. And believe me, it's actually for a good reason. And a lot more people support it and support the concept of it, I do, than I actually thought would 24 hours ago. So lots on the show today. Glad you're with us. Toronto Today begins now. Let me start here. I do want to get to this Humboldt stuff. We're going to try and do a couple things in this particular segment um, with what transpired yesterday uh, with potential parole for the Humboldt bus driver who pled guilty to all the charges. But there's still a lot swirling, as you can imagine, in that community of the idea of him walking free so soon, so soon after the crash and and less than three years after his sentencing. Um, but Emma Titles, the city columnist for the Toronto Star, and I thought she wrote a brilliant, it's the best thing I've read on this strong mayor system. You know, we can't have this U.S.-type politics come to Canada, really, where cities run efficiently and and it's on one person's shoulders to actually get things done and there isn't uh, gridlock and deadlock on votes all the time and they don't just table things for a year and do a study on a study. You, we don't want that, right? Same as healthcare, right? We want people uh, in emergency rooms for 11 hours a day. We, we, we don't want anything where there's any semblance of, uh, of, of how would I put it, efficiency in healthcare. We're just going to keep rolling along. Past two years, we've learned nothing. Let's just keep rolling along with it like it is and uh, socialize the bejabbers out of it. So Emma Titles' uh, headline here here is uh, put aside your feelings about Doug Ford or John Tory for a moment. A strong mayor system for Toronto actually makes sense. She's right about this. And she's right about why it makes sense. I'll read you something here from her column. But critics of the mayor are quick to point out if he doesn't spend the political capital he already has on the housing file, what difference will extra powers make? But there's been time after time where people have gotten gridlocked about the housing crisis. And many times I understand why counselors have voices. I also understand why it's concerning right now to have somebody come in from the outside and tell you what you may already know or tell you something that's going to happen. And you're like, we haven't even talked about this internally. And this is happening right now in the city of Toronto. And it's not the first time. And I think the problem is there's such tension with the idea of of Doug Ford just kind of swooping in. And he swooped in 2018 also when he uh, dropped the amount of city councillors that were going to be from 49 to 25. I told you yesterday, London has 16 city councillors. London has 16. They're a city of 400,000 people. It's the, it's the city that thinks it's a small town. And even if you have that philosophy about Toronto, we understand the scope of Toronto. We understand just how spread thin a lot of resources are and a lot of infrastructure is, as great a city as we happen to be. But the veto is not something that is significant to me that ends up being a problem. Um, as Emma Title writes, if Mayor Tory has more power at his disposal, it will become harder for him to claim that he's hampered by the limitations of his role. Of course, to the in the minds of some of his critics, he'll achieve nothing of note, no matter how much power he attains. He is to them a servant of the status quo, incapable of change and in bed with evil incarnate as in Ford. But can we please move beyond the present players of the drama for a moment? Because when we do, when we remove Tory and Ford from the equation and consider our democracy in general, we may come to the conclusion that a strong mayor system actually makes sense. And it does. Josh Matlow was on the show yesterday. Now he does make the point. Would this have worked for a David Miller better than it would have for Rob Ford? That's a fair question. And Rob Ford, Doug's younger brother, was probably somebody that needed to be in check. But let me, after we hear from Josh Madlow, let me explain why Madlow's right, but Emma Title's right at the same time. In Toronto, of all cities, uh, we don't have to go back very far to remember why this is such a really bad idea. Um, we had a mayor a few years ago who was smoking crack while he was in office. Uh, it was an international uh, situation. Um, he was under an active police investigation. And as dramatic and extreme as that is, it was real, it happened, and it didn't happen long ago. 
it was critically important that council had the ability to hold uh, Mayor Ford in check at that time okay. to provide mm-hmm. a functional government. Okay, we got that's Josh Madlow on Toronto Today yesterday. So we do have we do have crack smoking mayor happening at the time. We know how embarrassing that was when he goes on Jimmy Kimmel, when uh, movies, bad or otherwise, are being made about him. We know that that was not exactly a, a stellar chapter in Toronto's municipal history. Got it. I'm with you. I understand. And at the same time, the idea of yesterday, a veto of two thirds of votes. Do you really think, let's say we've got 25 city councillors. We had a lot more when, when Rob Ford was mayor. We know that. Let's say we've got 25 city councillors, which we do right now. Do you really think, do you really think, and I don't think Josh Madlow thinks this. Do you think if we had a uh, Rob Ford, the sequel, that somehow, some way, two thirds of council wouldn't keep him in check? The two thirds of council wouldn't limit his extravagances or his eccentricities is probably a better word. You don't think we could get a 17, eight vote to shut down things. A crack smoking mayor would want for the city of, then we put the wrong city council in. Then we did that. We can't even find anyone. We can find people, but we can't find anyone that can beat John Tory to run against John Tory. And we're worried about limiting his power to the point where it would just take a 17-8 vote to stop something or enact something. We've kind of lost the plot. You want a stronger city? Get a stronger mayor. Council has strength as well in that they can keep him in check. Not to the vote of 14-11, but to the vote of at least 17-8. You really think there would have been eight councilors going, ah, just let Rob Ford do what he wants to do, do what he does. Everything's good. He can make those gross comments about what he's got to eat at home, blah, blah, blah. Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. No, of course not. Of course not. Because everybody's duly elected in this particular case. It makes no sense to me that people be worried about that. I want two minutes here on the Humboldt uh, bus crash uh, to share with you what exactly has transpired. Um, the driver, Jaskarit Singh San Sidhu, was sentenced to eight years in 2019. Some of that was time served. The bus crash happened in April of 2018. 16 young boys uh, were killed. 16 boys and staff were killed. 13 were injured. Sidhu's at fault. And he pled guilty to all the charges. Didn't contest any of them. He went through a stop sign at a rural Saskatchewan intersection and drove right into the junior hockey team bus as it was on its way to a playoff game. Sidhu may be deported, but he applied for release. And the Canada Border Services Agency, which has recommended they uh, hand him over to immigration and refugees. It's a a lot of gray area here if he should get deported back to India. The Parole Board of Canada... Okay, granted him day parole. It's problematic for some people, and I understand why. I understand why Sidhu would not maybe want to live in Canada anymore, as many fantastic things about the country as there is. I understand why the people in the Saskatchewan community or anywhere in the Prairie Provinces wouldn't want Sidhu's being around, Sidhu being around as a memory of the crash. I understand all that also. So I'm not seeing one side of it and not the other. And nobody I spoke to when they heard the news yesterday feels any differently. It's a horrific crime. It's a bad decision. We can talk about second chances. I'm a big believer in them, but not all the time. And he needed to pay a, a steep, steep price for this terrible mistake. We don't know why he went through the stop sign. We don't know what he was distracted by. We don't know what his condition was at the time, although obviously toxicology uh, ruled that he was not drunk and he was not under the influence of drugs. That's all we know. This audio here tells me why he can't be in the community anymore, but it also tells me that parents who didn't expect three years later for him to be out walking the street, day parole does get you out. This is Scott Thomas talking about his son and the impact his beautiful 17-year-old boy who we lost, the impact that he had around their family home. Like I said in the letter, it's he's everywhere in the house. We moved into that house just after he learned to walk. And in the garage, there's the, which I'm sure every parent does, there's the marks at, you know, four years, at five years, at six years, at six months. And, uh, you know, there's the marks in the wall downstairs from when they were playing mini sticks. There's the where he smashed his head in the, on the uh, playing football in the front yard out on the uh, little light standard that's out there. There's the, all those things that are just him 
that uh, we just couldn't couldn't have any more in our lives if we have to find a way to to have a different life. There's a picture of this beautiful 18-year-old boy uh, looking like he's dressed with a, a grad photo, probably graduated from grade 12 the spring before, and you just can't even you, – you can I, I can listen to that, but not more than a couple times, and I can barely watch. Here's one other dad. Uh, Adam Harold was a 16-year-old defenseman from Montmartre, Saskatchewan, and here's what Russell Harold, his dad, said about him. I sat down in uh, his favorite chair in, the, in our living room, and I – took his urn and I set it on my lap. I pulled out my phone and I showed him pictures from our trip. I said, this is where we were. And I told him all the places we were and there were places that we had gone previously with him. You know, I'm holding in my lap my six foot two, 200 pound athletic son. I don't know. I don't know if the victims' families were thought of here. Full parole is six months away. I, I never imagined it. I know he's going to live with guilt the rest of his life. I know he's not at a risk of reoffending. This isn't a violent, dangerous criminal. But I wonder if you'd feel the same if it was your child that was killed by this person, like those two men had. It feels like forever ago. It really does. But at the end of June, the week before Canada Day, I can't believe Canada Day was only 20 days ago. Canada Day was three weeks ago tomorrow. That's not right. That Rogers outage was only two weeks ago tomorrow. Time is flying. Uh, but gas was $2.14.9 a liter at the end of June. Like just a scant three weeks ago. It's expected to drop another four cents tonight. I saw it for a buck sixty-eight yesterday. So I suppose this is promising. Also promising the inflation numbers um weren't as awful <laughs> as they were yesterday like we're taking our small victories where we can get them so what about gas in toronto in canada what about our resources what we've got in the ground whether we are truly uh fuel independent or not i want to bring on timothy egan president and ceo of the canadian gas association and chat about that timothy it's great to have you on thank you for getting up early making time for our listeners i appreciate it my pleasure. It's good to be with you. Were you, I bring up just that common person price thing where people say, oh, it's going up today or it's it's going down tonight. Um, when we hit that that mark uh, three weeks ago and we're sitting at, you know, 215, 216 a liter, did you think it was getting worse or, or better than over the weeks to come? Those signals have not been particularly positive about uh, developing a commodity or commodities that we have in abundance. And we do have, an, have them in abundance. There's an awful lot of uh, oil in Canada. There's an awful lot of natural gas. There's capacity to develop those resources and use them for Canadians. But there has to be a willingness to, to use them by, by governments. And um, that's what's a bit in question right now. I guess I ask that because I think anytime you have to import a good as opposed to develop it yourself, uh, infrastructure wise, you're going to pay more in terms of uh, of an import. So there's other countries that have a lot less control because they have a, a, over the price that their their residents pay, their citizens pay because they they don't produce any of it themselves. Do we look and, and say inherently Canadians get a better buy on gas than obviously somebody living in the Netherlands or somebody living in Sweden because we are able to get it out of our infrastructure and our soil, as it were, uh, as opposed to countries in Europe, for, say, for example? Well, it's definitely the case, right? I mean, you've got the energy security, um, which is being discussed globally, has never been an issue in Canada in the same way because we've got these resources in abundance. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't import. Mm -hmm. um, we often do import um, here in the in the natural gas industry. We import a fair bit of natural gas, but that speaks to efficiencies of the market across North America. So we bring a lot of natural gas out of Western Canada. We bring it into Eastern Canada, but also increasingly because of the amount of natural gas that's been found elsewhere in the continent, it's moving around in regional areas. So Eastern Canadian markets may be getting natural gas out of the U.S. Northeast. Western uh, Canadian suppliers may be moving natural gas down into the U.S. Uh, Midwest and and uh, and West Coast. So those kinds of regional efficiencies occur in the market, and that actually is better for the customer because why would you in Eastern Canada be importing natural gas from the U.S. Northeast? Because the distances are shorter, right? So it's it's more efficient. So. There are opportunities for all kinds of efficiencies like that. But overall, you're right. 
the situation for Canada is much, much better because we have this stuff in, in so much abundance. Timothy Egan's our guest, president and CEO of the Canadian Gas Association. On your website at cga.ca, uh, you've got a fact on there. And the question is how much of Canada's final demand for energy is met by the use of natural gas. In 2020, that number was 38%. If we look back in time, was that a bigger number or a smaller number, say five, 10 years previous to that 38%? Yeah, it's a really good question. It was a smaller number. Um, end use of natural gas is the fastest growing end use of energy in Canada. That means Canadians are finding more and more ways to use natural gas. So if you think of the average Canadian consumer using 100 units of energy, right now, roughly 40 of them are liquid fuels. So think of gasoline and diesel. 22 of them would be electric, uh, uh, the, uh, electricity in the form of electrons coming into your home or your business, and 38% are natural gas. Now, that natural gas number has been growing for a couple of reasons. One, because of the abundance story we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Abundance has translated into affordability. Affordability is the core advantage, I would argue, of natural gas in Canada. It's the cheapest means of using energy in homes and in businesses in Canada. When we talk about energy costs, I mean, I was, I was talking a little bit about air conditioning and it was one of those, you know, cruel ironies the last two days in, in Toronto, obviously, and there, in many parts of uh, of Canada, it's hot as blazes. It's probably there's some elements of, of, of temperature getting warmer and climate change that are irreversible. But it's that cruel irony that air conditioning keeps us more comfortable and yet adds to, you know, more environmental concerns. We're not using, say, natural gas to, uh, to you know, to, to get our air conditioners pumping and keeping us cool, but we are using energy. Um, like, it, it, I think we all see that sort of weird, cruel irony about it, don't we? Yeah, but I'd, I'd actually note that we may in fact be using natural gas for our air conditioners indirectly. Because remember, I talked about how you use energy and if it's 22% of the of the final use of energy is coming from electricity. You then have to ask, okay, where's that electricity come from? Now in Ontario, roughly 60% of it comes from nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Roughly 20% comes from, from hydro, 20 to 25, depending on, on water levels um, in rivers and, and behind dams and so on in the province. But the remainder, where does it come from? Well, it comes from a mix of things, sometimes wind, sometimes solar, um, and very often natural gas. And natural gas is actually, it's one of its core advantages is that it can be a key backup to electricity as well. So when it's really, really hot and there's no wind, then all that wind generation we might have in Ontario isn't particularly useful if it can't be generating electricity. And so what do you do? You've got natural gas as a backup. So the province through um, uh, its uh, system operator, it's electric system operator, directs producers of electricity to make sure that there's always enough electricity available for Ontarians for all of our uses. Well, that means very often that we will have to call on natural gas. So it shows another strength mm. of the product. But I think it explains something that 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 you noted in uh, in your question to me, which is that most Ontarians don't really understand how their energy is generated, right? I can remember I was in an Uber a couple of weeks ago um, and the driver said to me, I call this my hydro car. Because uh, mm -hmm. he was driving a Tesla and he said since it was an electric vehicle, that electricity was hydroelectricity because lots of Ontarians think most of the electricity comes from hydro. And I had to explain to him, well, maybe you should call it a nuclear hydrocarbon car, <laughs> um, <laughs> which he didn't particularly like. But, you know, electricity comes from a variety of sources and that also changes province by province and is going to respond to particular things like, is it a windy day? Is it a cold day, et cetera? So it's a big macro uh, as opposed to micro question, but if we're going to cut global carbon dioxide emissions, if we want them going down as opposed to up, or at least limiting the somewhat, you mentioned you know nuclear. Don't we need more nuclear power? Isn't wouldn't it play that you know critical supporting role in in terms of limiting what we utilize in carbon dioxide emissions? And yet there's a lot of people that are that are, that want to shut all these nuclear power plants down across North America. Yeah, like nuclear is an important part of Canada's energy mix. As I noted, in Ontario, it's roughly 60% of our end use nationally in terms of, of, of our electricity end use. Nationally, in terms of the electric mix, we're about 60% hydro, 20% nuclear. So nuclear matters a lot in Canada. But overall, if you think about all the ways we use energy, and we're using energy you know, for mobility, we're using energy for 
heating and cooling, using energy for, um, for lighting, for our computer needs, a whole host of things. Overall, roughly 80 of those 100 units of energy everyone uses are from hydrocarbons. So that means oil and gas and to a lesser degree, coal and, and, and wood. And you know those hydrocarbons are incredibly important because replacing 80% of your energy mix is not an easy task. So is nuclear part of the, um, of the long-term opportunity for us? It definitely is. It's part of the current mix, mm -hmm. but it's not easy to build a nuclear reactor. It takes a long time. And if you wanted mm -hmm. to replace the natural gas use in Ontario, with nuclear power, you'd need to build in the order of 90 nuclear reactors. So, you know, yeah. the, again, the, the energy mix is complicated. I got about 40 seconds here. So it, 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 now it's more a micro question. Are we gas independent, gas dash independent, or do we still, do we have enough for us, but do we still have to rely on other countries for gas? And yeah, I, I won't confuse that with the price of a, of a global barrel of oil with the with Saudi Arabia or even the United States with the pipeline, do we have enough natural gas in Canada to support ourselves and be independent? We do. Uh, we're we're uniquely blessed with hundreds of years of supply, and that's a that's a number that comes from Government of Canada data, uh, and I think it's a very conservative number. I think it's probably much bigger, but but there's no shortage of gas um, in Canada, and the opportunity to develop that resource is huge for the country, is huge for Canadians, and it delivers our quality of life, it delivers affordable energy. Um, we need mm. to keep thinking about um, how to use it better all the time, but we also need to remember that you can't just stop using this stuff. It's fundamental to everything we do. And as I said, we're pretty uniquely uh, unique, uniquely blessed with what we've got. So we're in a good position in terms of supply. Timothy Egan, President CEO of the Canadian Gas Association. Thanks for the time this morning. Really appreciate the chat. My pleasure. Anytime. Um, 911 calls. If you look, this is a lot like anything else. If you need to call 911 in a hurry, you want to get through fast. You want a quick response. But there's a lot that's hard with the 911 calls right now. And uh, what Ecom says, which handles the calls, which is the 911 system operator, is that they're getting, well, there's three big things happening. One is services are getting interrupted because there's a staffing shortage. There's that. Two, and, and some of that interrelated, number one, is the time of day. 911 is a lot easier to get a hold of somebody at 11 a.m. On a, on a Tuesday than it is on a Friday night at 10 p.m. That's, that's just how life is. You sit in an emergency room in the hospital um, or you want to take your, your kid to the emergency room because they've got a cough or cold or it's really, you know, you really want to get them looked at. You're better off doing it during the day, during the week than you are Saturday night at 11 o'clock. That's common sense. But Sheba, the other big thing is the... I don't know, the accidental dials, the pocket dials, the butt dials, accidental calls to 9-11. And there's people that accidentally call on their cell phone. I know I've done it. I don't know how many times a year, but it's more than once. Suddenly, you just look at the phone and you're like, how have I called 911 by accident? You hang up immediately, but the process has already started for them to record the call and get people ready. And um, and I, I don't know what the answer is for it. Do they call you back? Never. I've really? never been called back. And I worry really? about that because <laughs> yeah. I've never been called back. Um, they must okay, so feel like they get so many accidental calls. So unless they hear me breathing or, or yelling help and then I get disconnected. No, I but they're supposed to call back just to ensure that there's no emergency. So I've never done it from my cell phone. Um, I remember when my daughter was one, she was one years old and I was sitting in front of my computer. I had her on my lap and I, just, I had to return a quick email. So mm -hmm. I gave her uh, like our house phone, packed in a landline. So I gave her our house phone. We still have a landline. And yeah. just, just to play with, like just to you know, look at the buttons, she was one. And then all I hear is 911 emergency. And I look down at the phone and I'm like, what? I get, you know, when you hold the phone with both hands, I can see how she would have pressed 911. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, with, from the angle of where the numbers yeah, are. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. So then I pick up the phone. I'm like, I'm so sorry. My baby just <laughs> dialed this number. I, I was so embarrassed. And like, I'm taking up their time, right? I'm like, I'm so, so sorry. She goes, is there an emergency? I'm like, no, absolutely not. I'm so sorry to bother you. She's like, okay. Thanks. She's like, thanks. Ten minutes later, there are two police cars outside my house. For and, and first of all, it's a really it's embarrassing, right? People, the neighbors are like, "What's going on over there?" Yeah, no one wants cops in their driveway if they can no. avoid it. Gotcha. So they're parked right there. They're on the street, sort of blocking my driveway. 
And uh, they came inside and I said, hi, I'm so sorry. And I was holding her like in my arms. I said, my baby, I, who's going to believe your baby child that one one? <laughs> and so they're like, uh, they came, both came in and they, they just sort of stood there for like 10 minutes just chatting with us. All my kids were in my house. Everybody was home. And uh, I think they were just sort of assessing the situation, getting a feel for what's happening in the house. And I just kept apologizing and I felt so bad because this happens often enough. I mean, in, in Toronto alone. So in between July 2018 to July uh, 2021, okay, three years, 57% of calls made to 911 for, were for non-emergencies in Toronto. 57%, Greg. So that's that's such a waste of their time. Out of those 15, 57%, 18% were hang-ups like you do. Okay. Yeah. Three percent were pocket dials, and fourteen percent were asking for advice. So there's a problem here. I mean, this is we're taking away the precious time from these people who need to, you know, actually tend to real emergencies. I always takes- wonder how those kind of things leak out. Like, and you always hear it ends up being like a, a kicker story in in newscasts. Somebody called nine one one and uh, and wondered why their pizza was late, and here's the audio of it because these operators leak these calls out because yes. they're like. This is so ridiculous. And at the same time, those calls end up going, you know, going somewhat viral. I can't to go back to your story. You you needed to take you needed to take responsibility for your baby at that point and say, I did it. You you, you hung your baby out to dry. (laughs) You threw the baby under the proverbial pretend, uh, uh, you know, Lego bus by blaming your baby. She's she's a genius. Who gives your baby a phone? and But the operator didn't believe you. No, she, I, I think she did, but they need, they need to follow up. This is like, that's, that's an, even if there's a, a pocket dial or something, they're supposed to call you back just to ensure there's no emergency. So the fact that two police officers showed up, <laughs> it was so embarrassing. I, but they were wonderful. They were lovely. They were just assessing the situation. I just kept apologizing. And that's the last time I ever gave a baby a phone. They probably said they were out on that call for like three and a half hours too. And then oh, just went goodness. and kind of had, well, had a nap under a shady tree is what I would do. Maybe you're taking away critical resources, right? From people who actually need them. That's why I felt so awful about it. I think it was, yeah, it was a week ago today. I had my first e-bike experience. I'm up, uh, we go to a weekly uh, thing every year. We've done this 12 years in a row with my family, um, my uh, sister's family from Ottawa, and my sister's family from upstate New York. So there's 12 of us up there. We all have we all have two kids. Nobody was willing to roll that dice on that proverbial uh, third. I tried I tried twice to give my wife a daughter. And, uh, and we just when you're unsuccessful at something a couple of times, why keep trying? But either way, uh, this was 12 of us up there and nine of us out of the 12 with how busy we were, we're, we took turns on an afternoon of e-bikes and we'd never done it before. And I sometimes I'm a little ambitious and I come up with a plan and and then not everyone's as into the plan. You feel a bit bad afterwards, but you know when you throw a party and it goes well, that's what it felt like last Thursday was. And um, some of the data on e-bikes I was reading yesterday are remarkable with where it's gone in the market. You've seen the struggles. I don't want to dismiss Peloton, but you've seen some of the struggles they've had now. You're not outside with Peloton unless you put it on your deck. You're not going from place A to B on Peloton. Gyms have reopened now, so people might prefer to be interacting and being there as opposed to standing and sitting in front of a screen and and riding a Peloton. So the e-bikes have really, really moved the needle in terms of exercise it's kind of exercise and yet getting from point a to point b uh in a hurry and we want to talk about e-bikes with aaron Enchin, who's manager at curbside cycle in toronto and they sell conventional bikes but of course the e-bikes are available there as well aaron it is great to have you on thank you very much for getting up early and uh may- maybe i've interrupted your morning ride if so i apologize thanks for making the time for our audience hi greg yeah thanks for having me on no problem at all totally i couldn't i couldn't believe the sensation about this and i have a 16 year old son he's my oldest He's impressed by uh, nothing I say and nothing I do now. He's at that age that uh, that parents and teens get to. And he was just floored by how cool this this bike was. Um, I can't promise there will be one under the Christmas tree. I want him to still get proper exercise, but he was just thrilled by it. And you must get a lot of first time riders that sort of can't believe the efficiency, the sensation, all of it. These are a phenomenon right now. They truly are. Yeah. I mean, we've seen such an incredible rise of demand for e-bikes in the last few years. Um, really, since the early 2010s, they've been um, of interest on in the North American market. Um, and you saw a lot of innovative consumers coming to that with new research and experiences from riding in 
in Europe and other mature cycling markets. Um, but you know, the electric systems have improved over the years. The reliability is great. The power is better. The bikes feel better to ride. So yeah, demand is just uh, has just been incredible. So I, I read this U.S. study and it's from uh, 2019, but this is from Bike Advisor and this is Americans. But they found if eight percent of Americans replaced a short distance car trip, uh, less than eight K, say to go to work and back with e-bikes, it would save forty four thousand metric tons of CO2 a day. It's a mat like we're all doing what we can for the environment. The last two days with the heat. Tell us why we should do that. What a massive, massive difference that would be. Are we a little bit behind the curve uh, when it comes to Europeans doing this compared to North? And their cities do have an infrastructure that allows for this. Um, We only have a few major cities where you could conceivably do this. Yeah, we absolutely are behind the times. I mean, we have seen infrastructure growth uh, in major cities across Canada. um, Thanks a lot to the pandemic. I mean, it it certainly moved... uh, you know, more bike lanes in place and created more networks for uh, for people to feel comfortable and safe riding bikes through the city. But yeah, I mean, if we could replace, uh, you know, those shorter travel um, bike ride or, you know, mm-hmm. what people are using their cars for, um, that they could use a bike, I mean, it would, it would make such an impact. And, you know, there are many studies that are showing that people who uh, are, you know, riding bikes or, um, you know, traveling seven and a half kilometers Usually, um, that's their radius where they're going to be be you know living, working, playing, and, and a bike is kind of the perfect uh, tool for that. And an e-bike just extends that distance a little bit more, so you know you can go up to that twenty k or twenty five k radius and and still have a good time and you know get to work but not be covered in sweat. And that's it. You know, um, yeah, it's it's it's. We, we're, we're certainly behind the times, but, I, you know, we see some change happening. Oh, we're getting there for sure. Aaron Enchin, manager at Curbside Cycle, our guest on Toronto today. Um, wh- what are the biggest questions you get uh, about b- buying an e-bike? Is it about how long the battery lasts? Is it about how long um, how long it needs to be charged for? And, and, and yeah, I think that's everybody's biggest concern is, is, I suppose, getting stranded. And yet, like you said, the batteries have come a long way. The charging's come a long way and people can get a, almost a whole day day of use out of them, clearly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, one of, yeah, that is one of the major questions we get is what's the range of the the you know the batteries. So most of the e-bikes that we sell at curbside, uh, you can have a range of you know some 100 kilometers, some even 150 kilometers. And if you want to you know splurge for the dual battery option, you know you can get upwards of 300k on these things. It's it's wow. kind of wild. I mean, the bikes that we sell. Um, have uh, batteries with you know 625 watt hours or 750 watt hours so it really has uh has changed the the map as to where you can go on an e-bike and i think with the development of electric cargo bikes this is a huge uh, market for us that you're seeing with last mile delivery and companies like fedex who are you know really making a change in in how they make deliveries but then for families who want to get out and you know replace the minivan, have a little bit more engagement with the kids. It's, uh, you know, yeah, you can really get further out, um, get to the beach, you know, do those longer rides that you want to do and not feel at risk. It's rather, what what was sort of the evolution of this? When when was the first e-bike? When did you sell your first e-bike? And how how much more primitive were they then, say, than the incredible uh, technology that's involved now? Yeah, I suppose it would have been, you know, in the late 2000s, so 2008, 2009, we would have had some bikes coming in from Europe and they were okay. They were, they were, you know, still a burgeoning market there for e-bikes and they've, you know, they've taken it and run with it. They, they've got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of experience now with that, but um, for us getting those bikes, you know, it was really those, um, those initial bikes that got people jazzed about an e-bike. Um, and they just, I mean, they didn't have the range, maybe like 40 K, yeah. um, on, on a charge and the batteries weren't quite so big, but you know, we're now seeing bikes that use mid drive motors and it just makes the bike feel so much better to ride. And, uh, you know, and, and yeah, can just take you so much further. It's a weird one too. Like it's not, uh, Shiva and I were talking, she's got, um, younger kids than I have, but I, I said, said my 16 year old loved it. 
I would say this for kids. It is not a substitute for exercise. You could still pedal and do all the work if you want, get that little extra oomph and and go for longer rides. Like you said, you're going to be less covered in sweat on days like yesterday, less fatigue. But it's not I, I, I'm worried about a teenager just tooling around and using that uh, that that, um, you know, uh, handlebar throttle and not actually using the feet to utilize the exercise like they can go. You, you can get up to quite a speed in a hurry if uh, if you're if, if, so you got to yeah, know what you're doing on it. Well, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it's important to know the distinction between a couple different e-bikes. There are class one and class two e-bikes. So the throttle assisted uh, e-bikes are class two. We actually don't sell any of those at at curbside, uh, Mm -hmm. mainly because, you know, we want the bike to still feel like a bike. And, you know, uh, if you go to Europe, there are no throttle Um, e-bikes. Really? All pedal assist only. So, uh, that does kind of change the game a little bit in terms of getting the exercise that you want, uh, as opposed to just sitting back and holding a throttle down. What I noticed as well, and uh, and I don't, I don't need to help you sell bikes. I'm sure it's a it's a seller's market right now, given how many people want to be out there. They want to hit the roads, uh, especially in the spring and summer. But I I would have guessed they would be notably more than like a really, really good pedal bike, like a like a like a really top notch Louis Garneau or something like that. That was the first bike I had or a, a first modern bike. They're not that much more. Obviously, you're you're charging and you're using your own power and whatnot. But I was surprised by how affordable they are. Will they get even more a little like televisions? Right. Will we get the technology to the point where whatever we were paying for TVs 20 years ago, if more and more people are buying them, um, we can get the we can get prices down as well. Yeah, absolutely. If we see if we see the market grow um, like we have in Europe, then, yeah, I mean, I think we'll see those prices drop. It's like any technology, you know, things start to get smaller, batteries start to get bigger, but lighter. And um, yeah, I think it's going to drop the prices a little bit. I mean, Mm -hmm. right now, um, you know, the four thousand to five thousand sort of the starting point on most um, on most pedelic or e-bikes. Uh, out there. And that's to have, um, you know, an e-bike that uses a Bosch or Shimano uh, system, which is a lot more reliable than a lot of those add-on kits that we see, or even some, you know, systems that really just don't have the the tech support in North America. It was great to have you on. Thanks for uh, some clarification and and thanks for some uh, uh, information about uh, where the market's going forward and and why they're, uh, they're so much fun. There's there's actually so much physical benefit to them, Aaron. I really appreciate you making the time. Really yeah, thanks so much, Greg. Appreciate you bet. Aaron Enchin is a manager at Curb Side Cycle. Um, these things were remarkable. Again, I, I'm, I know we try things and we're like, ah, you've hyped it up. It's not all it's cracked up to be. That's the opposite how I felt about e-bikes. I was like, ah, let's give this a go and obsessed. I, I can't even describe how obsessed I am with the product. Okay, it's our four for four quiz. We do it every morning around this time. Gord Rennie's yes, got it. Yes, so Hell's Angels is a story, but also the mayor and the potential of getting more powers is a story. So I thought we'd go into the history and the fascinating world of Toronto mayors. Why not? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's start with number one, like we usually do, including Mayor Tory. How many mayors has the city of Toronto had? Mm. Is it 65, 50, or 70? And now it's not including the, you know, re-election times. It's just individual. T- so no inner, are there, were there interim mayors you're not counting? No, this is all a new person being a mayor. Was the Hell's Angel member ever a mayor? That I don't know. All right. It could be. I can so, guess no on that one, probably, probably not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Well, Greg, give me a number. You 65, want me to, yeah, I was, 50, uh, or 70? 65. All right. Sheba. That was my guess, too, 65 in the middle. And I'm going to say 50, I think. You going to? Yeah. Okay. It's 65. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you went a bit, Regis. Is I that did. your final answer there? <laughs> That's right. I, I just right wanted to be different. Yeah. Number two, true or false, only three mayors in Toronto history have been removed from office. Is that true or false, Sheba? Three. I think that's false. Dave. I think it's false, too. And Greg. I think it's true. I think you, I, I don't, I think it's too random to not be true. It is false. No Toronto mayor has been removed for office, although Rob Ford came close. Yeah, I remember we were talking about that during the Ford thing. It was like he would be the first. Yeah, and he was taken out, but he appealed. What would they have removed him for? Dave, you were probably deep into the stories back then. (laughs) But but what would they have, like, I I don't, you know, if if you're 
charged with a crime, you can still be mayor until you're convicted of a crime. It it was close. They were going to remove him for using City of Toronto letterhead on a mailing that he sent out for his football foundation. That was the the loophole (laughs) that they were trying to And he was almost knocked out of being mayor for a couple weeks when he hit his head on that camera. That's right. Remember that? Then the scrum... It's oh, not good times. Yes, yeah. we so, shouldn't laugh at that, probably, no. but we are. No, but it no, brings us. I loved him. I, yeah. I oh did. my goodness! I, oh dear! I did. I loved him. I, I, he put us on the map. We were on. Was wasn't it a good Kino? map to be on. Nope. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. No, we. Were, yeah, maybe not. But I mean, there's something about him that just—he was like a teddy bear. Like it was just so. Sometimes I was a little speechless at the things he said and did. Oh, we left to speechless. Oh, we agree yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. true. Some of the stuff we couldn't play on radio. Uh-huh. But I don't. I have a soft spot for him. Yeah, I, I can imagine your newscast must have been very difficult back then, Dave. Yeah, yeah it was. It was a fun time. <laughs> well, that brings us to question three. If you think Rob Ford smoking crack was a bad look, there are. Tell me which one of the following acts were actually committed by a Toronto mayor. A, Toronto's 41st mayor, Sam McBride, was known for taking swings at other council members and even slammed a councillor's head against the wall. B, the fourth mayor tortured an opponent by having him stripped and beaten. And that was just last election. (laughs) Or C, the fifth mayor tried to shoot the city's first mayor unsuccessfully. Oh, my goodness. Which of those were actually committed by a mayor? Dave. You know what's astonishing is that no mayor has ever been removed, yet we're talking about all of these <laughs> that, things. That minor assassination attempt yeah. by the fifth ever mayor I, back in the 1700s. I'm going to say the uh, one who took swings at councillors. Okay, Greg. Yeah, the torture seems a bit heavy. Like I, like the, That's almost like out of the Saw movies. All right. I'm going to agree with Dave. All right, and Sheba. I'm going to go with the The stripping. The stripping. Yes. Well, you're all right, because all of them happened. What? All three of them happened. So the only way to get that wrong is to say none of them happened, none which you didn't happened. even give us an option. <laughs> I know. I love it. And the last question, uh, speaking of the first mayor who was uh, assassinated attempt, who was Toronto's first mayor? Was it Vance Everett, Jess Wade, or William Lyon McKenzie? Greg. Vance Everett sounds like a Yellowstone character who works at the okay. Dutton Ranch. <laughs> um, the second one. Jess Wade? Yeah. All right. Sheba. I'm going to say Vance Everett to be different. All right, and Dave. I'll go with the uh, the last one that hasn't been said, so William Lyon McKenzie. He is Toronto's first yeah. mayor. The other mm. two were uh, Elvis Presley characters for movies. <laughs> Vance Everett was? Yeah, Jailhouse Rock. Jailhouse Rock. And Jess Wade was from the movie Jarrow. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I think we uh, we span the history there, and I'm, I'm just, again, Whew. trying to figure out why the fifth mayor was so upset at the first mayor. I mean, you got the job now, and, well, yeah. and they don't, so. It was a rebellion or something. Bygones be mad. bygones. They were all mad. Yeah. All right, we're going to chat with uh, Sabrina Nanji from QP Observer. And a bit's been a while since we had, you know, she takes vacation, I take vacation. You get vacation, you got to take it. And uh, the election, it, I, the election was June 3rd. I remember it was a Friday, June 4th, we did the show. We're all exhausted. Um, Maybe we're all a bit stunned by some of the results. Um, Today, it's going to be so interesting uh, with this motorcycle ride. Dave Bradley was just talking about it. All our group uh, was talking about it. I don't know how we get, I'm a 10, Sheba's a 10. Dave Bradley said he was an 8 or 9. We got Gord Rennie here saying he was just a a sort of like a a mid-range 6 in terms of interest. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to forego a nap and, and watch footage of the Hell's <laughs> Angels going down the DVP today? No, nap is precious. <laughs> After the nap? Um, but it reminded me of a, cl- like, uh, a clip a little bit, like one of my favorite uh, biker scenes in movies. Um, it, it, and I think it eventually it all ended well. So I think we have these judgments about bikers and these judgments about these bike gangs and whatnot. L- let's give, for example, the Satan's helpers in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. They turned out to be good guys. I'm trying to use the phone! Did anybody tell you that this is the private club of the Satan's Helpers? Nobody hit me to that, dude. It's off limits! Oh. Well, my mistake. <laughs> Guess I'll be on my way then. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, it should be pointed out, they were going to kill Pee Wee Herman until he danced on top of the bar uh, to tequila. Tequila. That's Iconic a, scene. Right. That's a, They were going to murder him. So yeah. maybe... Maybe I've been a little hasty in saying they're all great men and women. I don't. 
But they, but they, but uh, that dance won the gang over as it would any group of cool. And they gave Pee Wee a motorcycle, and he, I think he smashed it through a billboard or something, rendering himself unconscious. <laughs> Cord, but not that I've seen the movie thirty-eight times. Oh, uh, but we'll see, we'll see where this. You know, maybe we can find some common ground with the Satan's helpers slash Hell's Angels later today. Would it, would you be more scared of a bike gang called the Hell's Angels or or Heaven's Devils? Heaven's devils. Heaven's, it's de- if a, a thousand heaven's devils were coming today, you'd be like, it's a little bit of a oxymoron, well, yes. but not unlike hell's angels. Yeah. They're, Think they're, about that. They're both, you know, they're falling from grace, I guess. <laughs> uh, Sabrina Nanji uh, joins me right now from QP Observer. She doesn't know what she's walked into. But but that said, Sabrina, <laughs> give us your interest level in uh, the Hell's Angels. I mean, I think we want audio from uh, from Doug Ford, from John Tory. Maybe we can even find Stephen Del Duca and he can comment on uh, the Hell's Angels ride today. I'm just I'm obsessed with the coverage of this and seeing what's going to happen today. What about you? It's sleepy summer, right? So, like, why not? Uh, but, you know, for me, it's the noise. That's, that's the thing that bothers me the most out of all this, like having those engines. I think that's probably part of their their point. But, uh, yeah, going to be a, a loud weekend. If motorcycles were quiet, we'd have a we'd have a totally different uh, read on things. So um, we were eager to get you on to talk about this. Um, this strong mayor policy, this scary U.S.-based mayor policy, and I, I'd love to get your read for it. I love what Emma Title wrote in the Toronto Star, and I agree with her. If anything, um, a, a mayor can, you know, create a little less gridlock. I think the veto power, if you're, if you're voting 17 to 8, the mayor doesn't have unilateral absolute power here. I'm not sure why it's as big a story, but I think, as you well know from, from our history here, Doug Ford just swooping down and telling the city of Toronto what to do during an election campaign doesn't go over terribly well sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like deja vu, right? Mm-hmm. Like here Ford is winning another election and, and soon after he's already uh, tinkering with Toronto uh, City Hall, which is what he did back in 2018, uh, in a sense. You know, he he came to power then, he slashed the size of council almost in half. Uh, and now he's talking about, uh, you know, giving mayors, uh, and specifically at first, you know, Toronto and Ottawa, this, this veto power. Um, and of course, you know, at this point, there are more questions than answers. Like we still need to see the legislation. Uh, you know, cabinet has yet to sign off on this. They, they met yet yesterday um, but but nothing is set in stone and so what we've got kind of now is this trial balloon that was essentially leaked to the star uh, and and lots of reaction on it and I think this might uh, you know I, I guess the, the effect of it essentially is that you know the Ford government can kind of see the reaction but here he is with you know a whopping majority he could do essentially whatever he wants and and the argument um, Initially, the, the spin from the you know conservative sources that, that leaked this was that it was about affordable housing. That's what the housing minister said. He's the one that we're expecting to table this legislation when it comes, uh, you know, at some point in, in August, we're expecting. And uh, then the premier was asked about this yesterday, uh, and, and he said he, he's not really sure about the affordable housing part. But this is nothing new for Doug Ford, you know, like yeah. he's been a proponent of, of strong mayor um, a, a veto type power, uh, you know, since back at, at during his council days, almost a decade ago, uh, you know, when his brother, uh, Rob Ford was mayor too. And he's pointed to Chicago, of course, you know, the Ford family business has a lot of ties in Chicago, um, that sort of style. And so it, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Uh, but I think, you know, the checks and balances are going to be really what's important here. Uh, you know, the premier kind of said that two thirds of council could override this veto. Um, I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, they're kind of remaining like waiting to see, to, to see uh, you know, if this really will be effective, because I think everyone can kind of agree that, especially when it comes to, you know, the biggest cities in this province, Toronto and Ottawa, um, there is a lot of, you know, backlog at, at City Hall. I'm not sure if, you know, cutting the size of council in Toronto actually, you know, moved things along. But obviously, this is one thing that, that Doug Ford is uh, plowing ahead with, uh, you know, uh, critics, mostly councillors, be damned. Sabrina Nancy's our guest reporter with the QP Observer. It's I mean, it's the most obvious paramount example and a recent example at that, Sabrina. But during the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, it felt like the mayor and I was critical. I think a lot of people were harshly critical of of inactivity and paralysis for, for Jim Watson and their city council there and the police. But maybe it is a patented example where a stronger mayor and a stronger local government can, you know, put like like put their put their feet down and say after a certain point in time, long before four weeks and say enough's enough. But it didn't it didn't feel like either he or council 
I won't say had the backbone, but just had the wherewithal and the legislation to do it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that we can, you know, talk about the hypotheticals till the cows come home. But I think especially when it comes to the convoy protests, uh, the, the bigger question might be, you know, if the mayor did have these powers, if he would be willing to do it, um, mm. especially for, you know, such hot political hot potatoes as the as the freedom convoy. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily sure how this would speed up housing. Obviously, like I said, the devil is going to be in the details um, when this comes down to it. Uh but it, it, having kind of that that checks and balance with the you know two thirds of council being able able to override the mayor's veto, like will that kind of just end up getting things backlogged and and tied up? I think you know at the end of the day, um, for me, it's kind of about transparency here. Like I'm as a reporter, you know, someone trying to get the answers on this. It's like I'm not a big fan of how the story kind of came out. You know, kudos to the star for for doing their, their digging on this, but obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of questions and it seems to be kind of like the MO of this government uh, to kind of put these trial balloons out there, get the reaction and then tweak what they actually end up going ahead with accordingly. And so obviously, you know, there is a lot of um, controversy and this has basically everyone talking right now. I think, you know, there's even a lot of mayors that have a bit of FOMO here, you know, uh, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie is kind of like, what about us? You know, uh, what about Brampton? Uh, and so obviously, you know, I think this is going to be uh, a bit of an experiment in Toronto and Ottawa, but it sounds like it's coming and it's going to happen before the October 24th municipal election. So um, buckle up. And that's and that's I, you brought up a great point, because that's my issue there, whether you're in London, Kitchener, Windsor or whatnot. If the idea is to get more done in a shorter period of time, for 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 your citizens, for the people who duly elected you in municipalities, then you're right. We got 440 mayors in Ontario. Why give powers to two and not the other 438? Yeah, I, th- I think you know probably the government's argument here is that Toronto and Ottawa are the biggest cities in, in this province, and so let's start there. Um, but I'm sure that you know affordable housing, if that's what they're going to use to kind of justify this mm-hmm. or, or you know justify one aspect of it. Obviously, every city is kind of dealing with this right now. And and Ford kind of hinted that it might just be the bigger municipalities, not so much the smaller ones. And so now he's kind of set off, you know, mayors from all all pockets of the province, uh, you know, wondering what's going to happen. How does this affect us? Um, Councillors, of course, too, you know, are worried about them losing uh, some of their powers and, and, you know, being weakened when they've been elected um, by constituents to, you know, get things done. So I think how this plays out is mm. uh, a bit touch and go right now. For visiting with Sabrina Nanji from uh, QP Observer, and we'll tell you about how you can uh, subscribe to it as well. Um, this uh, Hockey Canada story, I don't want to say it gets worse every day, but uh, Sabrina, for someone who covers politics as you do, and we look for accountability in our politicians, we know that sometimes they're not accountable. We know sometimes they're not transparent. But when you're a grassroots organization and you take fees from 50-year-olds playing beer league hockey and uh, and and parents of boys and girls at age six playing hockey, I think you owe a little more than your average politician. I haven't seen it so far. I ha- I've just seen a lot of, oh, that was really wrong. We promise not to do it again. But I-, I understand people wanting a pound of flesh here, but I also don't understand why there isn't sort of more outcry about uh, about what they didn't do as opposed to what they're doing now. Yeah, I think that's going to be inevitable. And like, look, like the road to transparency and accountability, I think in this case is is going to be a bit of a messy one. I mean, there are so many questions right now, you know, um, who knew what, when, you know, uh, who's responsible? How did something like this happen? But essentially, you know, I think like the the details are kind of less important than this, this fund that Mm -hmm. we're talking about, because essentially it kind of sounds like, you know, um, Hockey Canada, this organization, um, you know, kind of just hastily paid out an amount to settle a a case involving, you know, allegations of sexual misconduct. and, And it's specifically earmarked for that. I mean, what kind of like you know upstanding organization would would have that type of policy? I think is something that a lot of people are thinking and feeling now. And so obviously, you know, there really needs to be some serious accountability here. Um, and there's there's a lot of questions. Uh, but but you know, I, I think maybe now it's uh, especially you know with with the prime minister kind of calling this out too. You know, uh, I think maybe now this is the beginning of of getting some of those answers. But yikes, it, it does seem to be getting a, a like it's like we get a bombshell every day about this. One. It feels that way. Yeah, the Globe and Mail had some uh, amazing reporting on it yesterday, and uh, 
It's it's such a struggle. It's a struggle. And um, look, the prime minister's got this right. The liberal government, I, I you know, I'm critical of them when they're not accountable to themselves and when they're not uh, accountable in the House of Commons. Uh, but the minister of sport, Pascal St. Ange, snap of a finger, your funding's frozen until you, until you can meet certain guidelines and be a little more accountable and transparent. And I'm, that was six weeks. That was five weeks ago now. And I'm not sure we've seen Hockey Canada step up and say, this person was in charge of this and we just can't have this person in charge. But that's what you're supposed to do. That's what we ask our governments to do all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I think generally speaking, like sport organizations and leagues, when it comes to, you know, this type of misconduct, uh, you know, involving players, like they are kind of slow to respond. But, you know, eventually the hope is that they do the right thing. And I think you're right. You know, the way to kind of get past this is to show us the money, you know, show Mm. us every time this fund was used, you know, make a public list about it. Um, even, you know, if there was like a non-disclosure agreement, you can kind of at least disclose the fact that there was one, I think. And so um, here, you know, just kind of having everything happening in the shadows is um, just really like, it, it's it's beyond horrible optics. You know, this is essentially, you know, kind of coming off as, as a cover-up fund for something that could potentially be criminal behavior. Um, and like the heartbreaking thing, you know, even kind of on a, on a broader scale is that like, this is our national sport, you know, and to have this organization, um, you know, exposed for this type of behavior, I think is just like disappointing and, and shocking on so many levels. And and my first thought is obviously if, uh, if a crime was committed or something uh, untoward happened, my first thought is with the alleged victim, but I'll tell you my second thought is with a player who is absolutely completely innocent of this. The lack of information that comes out. Sabrina, you can imagine if you were one of 20 people in an organization and someone said eight people from this organization are accused of doing this, but the eight people were, everyone's under scrutiny at that point in time. And that's that's not a great, that's not a great place for a young professional. Man, woman, doesn't matter. That's not a great place for a young professional to be. If I had nothing to do with this and I was nowhere um, in terms of knowledge or or action on this one, I'd kind of want my name to be cleared. And I'm not sure it has been yet. There's been so much murkiness through this that they're all under suspicion and that's no good. Yeah. And, and you know, the first rule, if we're going to be talking from like, you know, a political perspective is you never create more questions and answers. And this is exactly, you know, kind of this piecemeal transparency, which, you know, mm-hmm. kudos to all these sports journalists who are really, you know, digging into this now. I mean, um, th- this is just kind of the problem that it creates, you know, like we're in the public just kind of left to speculate right now. And so I really think, you know, Hockey Canada in particular would do itself a major favor by, you know, coming out and just telling us everything mm-hmm. and just laying it all on the table. We've got a couple of minutes left. Um, as I mentioned, the NDP, and I'm a little surprised at the timing of this. Some people have echoed my surprise. Some people are saying, Ah, what's the rush? But they're not going to name a permanent leader. They're not going to have uh, a, a new leader step forward as the leader of the opposition until March. And there's a extensive process involved, a costly one. There's obviously some of the names we've talked about before that seem interested. Uh, you know, Styles comes to the forefront. Catherine Fife from Waterloo may be in the mix. But are you surprised they're waiting uh, until March to get this done? You know, actually, from New Democrats that I've been talking to, it could have gone both ways. I think, you know, having this longer runway, it gives the candidates uh, in particular a bit of a leg up, because as you mentioned, you know, it's it's not cheap. Uh, it's fifty five thousand dollars to register. Essentially, you know, you pay five thousand up front and then another fifty thousand in installments later. Uh, you know, you can spend up to nine hundred thousand uh, if you're, you know, running for the leadership. And so, uh, you know, th- there is a lot of money involved, a lot of fundraising. You know, building up your profile, uh, signing up new Democrat members who would vote for you in March. So, I think, you know, they they do have their interim leader. They named their shadow cabinet already, so they they've kind of got all their ducks in the row. You know, unlike the Liberals, uh, with you know the House coming back August eighth, they don't have an, an interim leader. We don't really have much of a timeline mm-hmm. on that. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, they kind of got their caretaker situation set up, the NDP. But there are some advantages and disadvantages. Obviously, you know, the new leader um, is, is hope like is hoping to be the next premier in four years. And so this they, they need all the time they can get for the public to get to know them. Uh, 
you know, and, and, but, but at the end of the day, you know, Ford and the PCs, they have their huge majority. So it kind of does feel a little bit like the opposition parties, especially at Queens Park right now, they're weakened, you know, they don't have as many seats as they did in the last time around. So it does feel like they're going to be a bit preoccupied with their own internal, uh, you know, drama, <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, really being able to hold the Ford government accountable uh, yeah. as they would when there's a permanent leader in place. Uh, it's a Sabrina Nanji from QP Observer. How do people subscribe to Queens Park Observer? Uh, just go to qpobserver.ca, punch in your email, and you'll start getting emails. And then just like that, she wrote about, uh, of course, uh, the potential there uh, as well for uh, this civic clash and, and a couple other uh, factors as well. Just this morning, as a matter of fact, got published. So it's always new stuff and always insightful stuff as well. Sabrina, thanks very much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Sabrina Nanji joining us from Queens Park Observer, qpobserver.ca. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow to wrap the week. Is that possible already? Yes, it is. And uh, we'll send you into the weekend with what you need to know and keep you entertained as well. Hopefully you can join us. You can listen on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com.